This morning's text comes from the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so also are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word. Father, as we open your word this morning, uh, we do ask that through your spirit, you would transform our hearts and our minds and our lives even into the image of your Son. And God, as we stand here at the beginning of another year, we ask that you would be at work in our lives, that you would help us to increasingly pursue you through your word, that you would be at work to increase our capacity to love you and to love others well. And God, as we stand at the beginning of a new year, we say, or we confess that we don't know what this next year holds, but we ask that whatever comes, you would use it to strengthen us, that we would be found faithful in the day of Christ Jesus. And now, God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I just read, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. Um, and so if you have a Bible, I do encourage you to open it and follow along. And while you're turning to Mark chapter 2, I, I have a question for us. Um, by a show of hands, how many of you have crafted New Year's resolutions this year? Anyone? Okay, we got, a, we got a handful of people. How many of you know someone who has crafted a New Year's resolution this year? Okay, a few more. How many of you have done it in the past? How many of you, yeah, there we go, how many of you were successful? All right, we got a couple who are successful. All right, very good. Well, um, as we all know, whether we've, we've got uh, New Year's resolutions this year or we've done it in the past or, or not, um, there's something that seems like that always ties New Year's resolutions together, uh, something that's common uh, among all of them. And most resolutions focus in some way on the betterment of self. So for many people, when they are making a New Year's resolution, it'll say something about eating healthier, or it'll be about uh, exercise, or it'll be more diligent, being more diligent in spending habits. Uh, for others, it's a reading challenge. For others, it's uh, something like putting your phone away and putting it down for a longer amount of time so you can spend time with family and friends. Uh, and, and for many Christians, it includes this desire or this focus uh, or this commitment uh, to be consistent in Bible reading, uh, to be more consistent in prayer. And one of the things that we can wonder is, is what do all of these resolutions have in common? Well, all of these resolutions have in common this focus on discipline. They focus on the deprivation uh, of something that we see as a good thing, whether that's pizza 
or the couch or sleeping in so, so that we can do something that we know is good for us, but something that doesn't necessarily come naturally for us. It's this exercise in discipline. And, and that's one of the things that as we stand at the beginning of a new year, whether we made a, a, a resolution or not, it's a good opportunity for us to, to reevaluate and say, hey, what are some of the disciplines that I want to bring about or cultivate in my own life? Now, in Jesus' day, they, of course, didn't have New Year's resolutions. That's a completely foreign concept. But this idea uh, of discipline was not at all foreign to Jesus and his audiences in the first century. In fact, two of the most popular religious groups, if you will, of that day, this group of people called the Pharisees and this group of people who followed this man named John the Baptist, they, they stressed the importance of discipline. The importance of denying yourself, of, of getting rid of things, all of these things in an effort to pursue the kingdom of God. So I want you to, for a second, just imagine that you are a first century Jew. You are living in the first century, and there are these respectable religious leaders, the people that you look up to. So uh, again, think of, of someone that you look up to today uh, who is a religious uh, authority or religious influence, and you're, you're looking up to that type of person. Those who follow John's teachings, again, in the first century, even those who follow the Pharisees' teachings, and these religious leaders, these religious authorities are, are saying, fast, fast, fast. The key to living a, a good, gospel-centered, God-centered life is to fast, is to deny yourself, it's to practice discipline after discipline after discipline. That right there is the key to knowing God and even the key to ushering in his kingdom here on earth. Okay, so that's the context. But then there's a new teacher who shows up on the scene. This is a teacher who is also talking about the kingdom of God. This is a teacher who is also talking about knowing God, also talking about preparing yourself for his return. But instead of saying fast, 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 he is a frequent attender of parties. He's oftentimes found at feasts. Many of those feasts are actually thrown in his honor. And to make things even more confusing, this teacher is able to back up his message about the kingdom of God, about preparing ourselves for this kingdom with teaching that is more powerful than anything you have ever encountered, with a power to heal any and every disease that he is faced with. This power over sin, this power over evil itself, over the demonic. And here he is, and he seems to be saying the right things but at the exact same time he's saying things about the kingdom of God, he is also not fast, or his disciples aren't fasting. He's not fat, they're not fasting like the rest of the religious powers that be. And the crowds begin to say, well, what gives? What's going on here? What, why, why are they fasting, but your disciples are not? And that's the, the question that this morning's text deals with. It is a question of discipline. It is a question of why, from the crowd's limited perspective, is Jesus allowing his disciples to be lax in pursuing God? So as we consider this narrative, I want to just look at it through the lens of three questions. Okay, three questions. Some of them are, are explicit, actual questions from the text. Some of them are implied based off of what Jesus responds with. So the first question is this, why, from the crowds to Jesus, why don't your followers fast? 
The second question that I want us to look at is Jesus' response, where he essentially says, well, why should they? And the last question I want to look at is, is just another implied one. Jesus to the crowds, will you grasp my message? Remember where we are in the book of Mark to this point. We've taken a break from Mark for uh, about a month or so. Uh, but last time we were in Mark, we were in the midst of this section where we see this opposition to Jesus is increasing. Mark starts his gospel by looking at Jesus as the one who is God himself, the one who will bring in God's chosen kingdom, this long-awaited kingdom for God's people. And then Mark begins to show us that that is indeed the case for who Jesus is. Jesus' popularity is skyrocketing throughout Galilee, but at the exact same time, there is this opposition that begins to grow toward Jesus and his message. And we, found our, we find ourselves here in the middle of five stories that look at this opposition towards Jesus that continues to grow and grow and grow. Our text this morning begins in verse 18, right after, immediately after this story about Jesus feasting. That's an interesting juxtaposition here. Jesus is feasting, and he's not just feasting with the, the religious uh, the religiously acceptable crowd. He's actually feasting with these sinners and these tax collectors, and that compels the the crowds to make this comparison. Jesus, you're you're eating, and you're you're, you're eating with people that that you really shouldn't be eating with. And, and then over here we have these people who who are religiously respectable, and they're fasting. So why aren't your disciples fasting like them? Notice again in verse 18 where this question is asked. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, this this question is, all of the other quote-unquote respectable religious people follow these stringent restrictions as a part of their religion. So Jesus, why don't your disciples follow the same rules? To understand the full weight of the question that the crowds are asking Jesus, we have to understand the Old Testament context of what fasting was for. Old Testament is filled with example after example after example of of fasting. And there are many different reasons for why people would fast. This is one of the confusing things when we look at, at fasting is there are so many different motives, so many different reasons in Scripture for why people fast, it's hard to just narrow it down to one or two. But that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. The various motives uh, that we see in the Bible, uh, they should give us pause to this idea of saying fasting is only for this reason. And yet, if you were to sum up the two biggest categories in the Bible for why people fast, I think that they could be summed up in, in one of two ways. The first reason people fasted was as a response of sorrow. Fasting was a response of sorrow. The Old Testament law... Uh, only required fasting one day a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. You could fast more than that, uh, but it was only required on that one day every single year. The Day of Atonement was a a solemn day. It was a solemn gathering for the people of Israel when they would gather together and they would remember the great cost of their sins. It was a reminder that even the sacrifices that were offered daily and weekly and monthly in the temple, day after day, even hour after hour, all of those sacrifices were still not enough to atone or to take care of their sins before God. 
The Day of Atonement was actually this reminder that, that the people's sin was so great. It was such a big problem in God's eyes that it had to be taken care of, and it was taken care of by this mediation of the high priest. The high priest would enter into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And because of the gravity of this moment, the sinfulness of the people, it only took place once a year. And in preparation for that day of sorrow, the people were commanded to fast. It was a sign of their contrition. It was a a sign of their repentance of their sin to God. Now, actually, the Day of Atonement is actually, a, uh, fasting on the Day of Atonement is a serious practice today still. Um, when Crystal and I lived in the Chicago suburbs, uh, we lived uh, for a year in this community that had a very substantial Jewish population, and it was shocking to see how different the, the tone of the, that community was on the Day of Atonement. It was this day of sorrow, this day of physical representing one's repentance from sin. I'm an Iowa Hawkeye fan. Uh, so take that as you will. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, there was this big um, hubaloo made of, of one of the, the players for Iowa's team. His name was Mark Wiseman, and he was a, a practicing Jew. And it happened to be that the Day of Atonement fell on the exact same day as one of Iowa's games. And so there was this discussion on whether he was actually going to fast like his religion required of him, or he was not, because it's kind of hard to play Division I football without eating. And he actually did fast, and he played the game. It's something that is, is a very serious thing still to this day for those who are practicing Jews. It is a statement of sorrow, of repentance before God. So in the first century, people fasted as a sign of sorrow. They, they fasted as a sign of repentance. But there was a second reason why they fasted as well, something that's closely related to that. Fasting not only was a sign of sorrow, it was also a declaration of one's longing. It was a declaration of one's longing. Remember, John the Baptist's mission at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. How was it described? It says this. I'm cracking up a lot here. How was it described? It says this in in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here in these first four verses, we see what John's mission from God is. It was to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming kingdom of God. John was sent by God in order to make sure that the people were ready for God himself to show up. For this kingdom that they had waited for for so long to finally be established. And how were they supposed to prepare themselves? According to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it is through repentance. John is incredibly successful in this message of repentance and calling people to repent and fulfilling his mission from God. Notice verse 5, the next verse. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here we have John, and people are coming to him in droves because they are longing for this long-awaited kingdom of God to finally come. So they come to John to prepare themselves for this coming kingdom. Now, the text doesn't fully explicitly tell us that John tells his disciples to fast. 
It's not in the text. But we do see that John himself was an aesthetic. He, he practiced serious de- uh, denial of self, of many different types of worldly pleasures, as a sign of his commitment, as a sign of his longing, as a sign of his preparation for this coming kingdom of God. Notice Mark chapter 1, verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's a statement of what type of life John is living. It's a life of denial. And so in that context, it makes sense that John would also be someone who practiced fasting, who encouraged others to practice fasting. So when our text here this morning tells us the disciples of John are fasting, it seems that they seem to be following in the footsteps of John, that they are adopting this rigorous lifestyle of self-denial in an effort to show God their sorrow, in an effort to show God their repentance from sin, this purpose, this first purpose of fasting, but also it is this representation or this declaration of their longing for God's kingdom to finally come, that it is almost here. That's the second purpose of fasting in the first century. But also we know from the rest of uh, the Gospels that uh, many people didn't practice it in that way. Uh, It was an abused practice. It quickly became something that instead of of a declaration of, uh, of longing for God's holiness, longing for God's kingdom as a sorrow in response to God's holiness, it actually wasn't focused on God's holiness at all. Instead became focused on one's own holiness and one's own spiritual superiority. So in Luke chapter 18, we see the statement from Jesus that says that the Pharisees actually took fasting so seriously that they took it to such an extreme that they they began to demand that anyone who was serious about their faith should fast two times a week. So every single Monday and every single Thursday, you would have to deprive yourself of food if you were serious about following God. Jesus minces no words in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about the hypocrisy of many people, especially the Pharisees, who didn't fast as a way to show their longing for their kingdom. They didn't fast as a way of showing their sorrow over sin, but instead as a way to show others their own greatness, to show others how spiritual they were. It didn't have anything to do with God. Fasting is a very complex topic in the first century. At its core, it is a very good thing. It's a statement of repentance. It's a statement of how much we need God. It's a statement of how much we long for God's kingdom, and yet it's also something that is clearly abused in the first century. It's it's one of the clearest signs, quote-unquote, of how spiritual you were. That's why the crowds mention both John's disciples as well as the Pharisees in the same breath. It's not that they're saying that John's disciples is really admirable figure in the Gospels, that his disciples are hypocrites just like the Pharisees, but instead it's as a way of saying, hey, everyone is fasting. Everyone who is serious about their faith is fasting for one reason or another. Why aren't your disciples? So that brings us to the second question implied by Jesus' words, starting in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus ignores the the hypocrisy of of many people of that day, and he says, You know what? I'm just going to assume the best about everyone who is fasting right now. 
I'm just going to assume that everyone is fasting because of, of good, righteous reasons. But also, at the same time, he points out that the crowds, by asking this question of Jesus, they're completely missing the point of, first, who Jesus is, and second, what Jesus has come to do. Remember Jesus' relationship to the crowds to this point in the Gospel of Mark. These crowds are just fascinated by Jesus. They're fascinated by this man who is a, a miracle worker, and yet they, they place no importance on his teaching, on the content of what he's saying. That Jesus says, I'm, I'm coming to bring the kingdom of God, and, and they're, they're not concerned with that. They only want to see Jesus perform another miracle. And so Jesus, as he is approached by the crowds, the crowds are asking him, hey, why is everyone else practicing these spiritual disciplines and your, your, your disciples aren't? Jesus sees it as an opportunity to teach the crowds again who he really is. And he does so by telling them this really short parable. It's just one verse long, this parable about fasting at a wedding feast. Now, this, this makes sense to us today, I'm sure. Uh, it would be completely uh, unthinkable to completely fast at a wedding banquet or a wedding reception. Now, perhaps you've gone to a wedding uh, and you've, you've been thoughtful about what you've ate. You, you haven't overeaten. Uh, perhaps you've, you've been thoughtful about the, the content or, or what specifically you eat and you choose a salad over or a lot of meat. But I don't think anyone here has gone to a wedding and said, you know what, I'm going to go to the reception, but I'm not going to eat a single thing that entire day. It's, it's unthinkably weird today, and yet in that day, it would have been an extreme insult. Understanding uh, ancient Jewish weddings, they were a week-long affair. It wasn't just a one-time or one-day reception. It was actually a week-long celebration. Remember, this is a context where people didn't eat meat all that often. They probably only ate meat a couple times a year. They didn't eat a lot of food to begin with, and so these wedding feasts would be glorious occasions. It was a time where you would be able to actually eat meat. You could eat actually a lot of good food, and you could spend time in, in celebration and friendship with your, your friends and your family. It's this time of extreme joy. You're, you're happy, you're, you're joyful for this married couple, you're, you're happy, you're joyful for this fellowship you're surrounded with, you're happy and joyful because of God's faithfulness in this moment. It's a time of joy, joy, joy. Now perhaps some of you have experienced that same experience uh, to a lesser extent. A couple, several years ago, Crystal and I were in um, Uganda and I was, I was teaching in a seminary there, and, and uh, one of my students at the end of the, the class time uh, invited Crystal and I to come over to their small one-bedroom house uh, for this meal. And uh, they, they served us meat for probably the first time in months for this family, and, uh, and they, they poured onto our plates uh, heaping helping after heaping helping after heaping helping. And, and I, I thought I was being thoughtful um, being considerate, and I just took a really small piece of chicken and put it on my plate. And, and my host actually got upset with me. He got upset with me because I was uh, unintentionally spurning his hospitality, unintentionally spurning his ability to celebrate with me this opportunity to enjoy fellowship with one another. He actually was somewhat harsh in his criticism of me in that moment. And that was just a Thursday night. 
So imagine the insult in this culture that, that looks at things through this lens of, of not having much and, and going all out for this wedding feast and saying, I'm not going to eat because I am fasting. It's not just weird in that context to, to fast during a wedding feast. It would have been an insult to the bride and groom. It would have been an insult of the, the highest order. To fast during a wedding was a way of saying, hey, I refuse to participate in your joy. You are joyful, but I'm going to be a person of sorrow right now. In fact, in the first century, there were oral traditions that said it was illegal for people to fast in the midst of a wedding feast. So what is Jesus saying here in this very short parable? Well, he's saying uh, he wants us to look at this through the lens of the purpose of fasting. First, this lens uh, of sorrow. Jesus is saying that this idea of sorrow has no place during a wedding feast. And by extension, sorrow has no place in his presence. Because Jesus comes to bring joy. The joy of God's kingdom is finally here. Jesus absolutely calls for repentance. He absolutely calls for contrition over sin. But in the presence of Jesus, even our sorrow over repentance leads to joy. Because he is the long-awaited bridegroom. Our last time in Mark, last November, we looked at this idea of the messianic banquet. It was this popular phrase that uh, I don't expect you to remember, but it's this, uh, this first century Jewish idea uh, that, that the Messiah's kingdom, that the long-awaited king, his kingdom would start with this giant wedding feast. This banquet would start off eternity in God's presence. It would be a, a banquet to, to honor God. It would be hosted by God, and, and everyone who was a part of his kingdom would get to sit at his table. Isaiah chapter 25 describes the beauty of this feast. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Jesus, when he tells this very short parable about this wedding feast, about fasting at this wedding feast, Jesus is saying, hey, it's, it's unthinkable for you to fast when you are with an earthly bride and groom. So how much more is it unthinkable to fast when I am the one who ushers in God's eternal kingdom, when I, the one who will swallow up death forever, am now with you. This idea of sorrow is unthinkable in my presence. Second, look at this through the lens of fasting as a form of, of longing. Fasting is this declaration of longing that God would bring his kingdom, that it would finally arrive, that there's... And yet, Jesus says there's no need for us to fast because the kingdom is already here. Remember the content of Jesus' preaching, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We long, why would you long for this kingdom that is far off when it's actually here in the person of Jesus? 
Jesus is asked by the crowds, why do your followers fast? And Jesus simply responds, why on earth would they fast when I am here? To fully understand the, the context of what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand what he is claiming about himself. The final two verses of this text, they're not a question, they're, they're just two parables, but they, they ask an important question of the crowds and they ask an important question of us as well. Take a look again in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So to this point, Jesus has described who he is. He's the bridegroom. He's described what he comes to do. He comes to usher in God's forever kingdom. And now Jesus tells these two parables simultaneously, highlighting the difference between his kingdom and those that came before him. Now, we, could, we can probably relate to the idea of fasting during a wedding feast, but I would venture a guess that the, the perspective of um, you know, this idea of patching homemade clothes with homemade fabric isn't something that many of us have too much experience with or the idea of, um, of fermenting wine uh, in a, a skin that you took off of a goat, probably not something that we all have fam uh, familiarity with. And yet at the same time, this message is relatively straightforward from Jesus here. Jesus is saying that the kingdom that he brings, this message that he brings, cannot be contained by the old way of doing things. In the old way of doing things, you fasted as a sign of your sorrow. You fasted as a sign of your repentance of sin. And yet now that Jesus has come, that repentance leads to joy at the one who saves us from sin. In the old way of doing things, you fasted as a sign of your longing for God's kingdom to come. But now Jesus has come and the kingdom has fully arrived. We don't have to long for something not yet revealed, but instead... It's something that's been revealed through Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus' message here primarily focuses on the old covenant of Judaism with the new covenant of Christianity. He's saying that Christianity is not something that you can just add on to your former way of doing things, but it's a completely new, completely radical thing. It's, if you were to compare it to what came before it, it would be like trying to patch a, a, a pair of clothes or a piece of clothing with the wrong fabric. It's not going to help the old at all, and it's actually going to ruin the new. But this is also a, a vitally important message for us today in a very pluralistic society that we live in. You see, Jesus' message of the kingdom it is completely different of a completely different nature than anything else, than any other message of salvation, any other message of significance, any other message of purpose, of ultimate meaning in this world, any other message of deliverance. Jesus' message is that there is a greater kingdom, a salvation that is far superior to anything else that we have ever seen, that any other form of deliverance cannot be compared to anything that he is offering us in the kingdom of God. And that's the claim Jesus is making here. It's the claim that Jesus is making here, that the deliverance and the salvation and that the kingdom that he comes to bring is so superior to anything else that you will ever hear. And so the question 
is simply this. Will you grasp the greatness of his message? Will you grasp the greatness of his message? Are you willing to accept the claim that Jesus is making here? Are you willing to accept what Jesus is saying? It's the same question leveled at the crowds centuries ago. It's the same question that we have to wrestle with today as well. Will we grasp the greatness of Jesus' message, of this claim that he makes? You see, as so often in the Gospel of Mark, Mark just leaves things uh, completely without explanation. He just ends this story without an explanation. He leaves us to wrestle with the obvious. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, what are we going to do with Jesus' message? What are we going to do with Jesus' message of the kingdom? Are we going to, like the crowds, see it as something that we can just dismiss, something that's unnecessary, this distraction from the life that we want? Will we uh, keep Jesus in his message of a life-altering kingdom at arm's length? Or will we, like, like the Pharisees, reject Jesus' message? That we would actually scoff at the notion of the supremacy of the gospel, the exclusivity of, of Jesus' kingdom? Or will we embrace it? Not with sorrow, but instead with joy. Because the bridegroom and his kingdom are finally here. And they bring us everlasting joy. As we went through this text, you may have noticed that I skipped verse 20. Verse 20 is actually probably the most important verse in this entire text. Let's go ahead and read it. Uh, 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus here is claiming that he is the bridegroom, the one who will bring in God's everlasting kingdom, and that's why his disciples don't fast. Why long for something that's far away when it's actually right here? Why be filled with sorrow when everlasting joy is right here? But immediately after that, in verse 20, Jesus says, my disciples aren't fasting because I'm here, but there's going to be a day when I'm not here, and then they will fast. What is in view here? What does Jesus have in mind when he refers to that day at the end of verse 20? Well, it seems pretty clear that he is referring to his crucifixion. It is this greatest day of sorrow in human history where the Son of God is slain for the sin of the world. It's this day that we express sorrow that when the creator of the world was crucified for our sin. You see, it would be wrong for us to conclude from Jesus' message, his words here, that sorrow has no place in the Christian life. Jesus points to a time when his disciples are going to be so filled with sorrow because he is taken away from them. This sorrow is rooted in an unshakable joy once they fully understand the gospel, his defeat of sin and death, this confidence in what God is going to do for them on the cross, but... Sorrow is still a part of the Christian life until the kingdom of God fully comes at Christ's return. And that's what Jesus is referring to. He's not just referring to his crucifixion when he says that day. He's also referring to the time that we live in right now, the time between his ascension and his return to earth. That's what Jesus has in mind at the beginning of verse 20 when he talks about in those days or the days will come. 
early on in his earthly ministry, Jesus is already looking to the cross. He's already thinking about us. This time after his ascension, this time where we live and the kingdom of God is here and yet it's not yet fully here, where Jesus is present with us through his Holy Spirit and yet we do not yet fully have his presence with us. He's already thinking about how we live in this day and age. He's saying that there's no need for us to to long for this kingdom when it's here, and yet there's going to be a time when I'm no longer here. And when that time comes, then my disciples will fast. Then my disciples will long for my kingdom to come in full. One of the questions you may have from this text as we've been going through it, is whether fasting is a necessary part of the Christian life. Whether all Christians should fast, and in fact, it seems like Jesus seems to hint that fasting is something that Christians will do, and yet he also says there's no need for Christians to fast. He says fasting is a part of the old covenant, the old way of doing things, but I've come, so there's no need to do it anymore. At the same time, he he says this idea, you know, fasting is a declaration of sorrow, fasting is a declaration of longing, and and you're going to fast as a sign of your longing for me to return. So which is it? Well, let me sum up this text with a simple phrase, and I think that this will help, be helpful for us this morning. If we were to sum up this, this text in just one simple phrase, it would be this. A superior long, a kingdom inspires a superior longing. A superior kingdom inspires a superior longing. You see, after studying this text the last few weeks, I've been thinking of questions like, uh, should I fast? Or, or how much should I fast? What will it look like for me to fast? And, and I've come to the conclusion that those aren't, it's not that those are unimportant questions, it's just that they're secondary to this heart of longing that Jesus desires from his people, this heart of longing for his kingdom to come again. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus assumes his disciples will fast. Here, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast, but he doesn't give us any expectation of what that will look like because he wants us to focus on the heart, this longing for our king to return, this longing for our king's kingdom to fully be established. I love the definition of fasting that John Piper gives in his book, A Hunger for God. He says it this way, the birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. The birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. Fasting is not a spiritual exercise that we do in order to gain God's favor. It is instead a declaration of our longing for God and his kingdom to come. It is an exercise in killing earthly appetites and earthly longings in order for heavenly appetites and heavenly longings to more fully be realized in our lives. We long for our king to return. We long for an eternal kingdom to fully be here. And so as we stand at the beginning of a new year, remember that a greater, superior kingdom is offered to us in the message of Christ. And as we see it from afar, consider what it would mean for you to stoke the flames of affection this year to more greatly long for that kingdom. For some of you, it might be through fasting. For others of us, it might not. But a superior kingdom inspires a superior longing. And we have been given 
the greatest, highest kingdom. So how will we respond? Let's pray. Jesus, we think of the greatness of your kingdom, the greatness of your return. And we can say, how are we able to fully grasp how good you are to us? God, we ask that you would help us to more greatly desire you, more greatly long for you, for your kingdom to come in full. And God, as we approach this communion table this morning, we ask that we would be reminded that you, through your spirit, would remind us of the incredible gift that we have been offered and the kingdom that we look forward to with great expectation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.